Hi, my name's Anita Johnson, and here's a special offer. If you donate right now to Making Contact, you will be rewarded with that warm feeling that comes with generously supporting something that's free. Hit pause and go to www.radioproject.org to get that awesome feeling right now. This week on Making Contact. When Mussolini started out in 1919, he started out with 100 men. Two years later, it was up to 250,000. Likewise, in the case of Germany, when Hitler attended his first meeting of the German Workers' Party before the name changed to the Nazi Party, at the time the party had 54 members. The far right and Antifa. In this episode, we'll hear from historian Mark Bray on responses to fascism that grew out of European resistance to Hitler and Mussolini in the 1920s and 30s. But first we go to Athens, where the Greek rapper Pavlos Fissas was killed by a man who claims affiliation with the far-right Golden Dawn Party. Every year, people come together to honor Fissas' memory and call for justice from the courts, and for accountability from the political party whose principles the killer embraces. Contributors Alyssa Moxley and Nikki Seth Smith produced this update on the investigation into Fissas' murder. The sun is setting on a crippling 100-degree day in Piraeus, Greece. Hundreds of people are gathering to remember the anti-fascist rapper Killer P, a.k.a. Pavlos Fisas. He was murdered on the street, which now bears his name. A memorial stone carved with his portrait shows him rapping into his microphone. People have left offerings, flowers, a can of beer, three cigarettes, and a plate of food from the free anarchist kitchen stall. It's his music being played. It's September 17th. Four years ago today, Fissas was searching for somewhere to watch a soccer game with two of his friends. He didn't know that the cafe they chose was affiliated with members of the Golden Dawn, a neo-Nazi political party. What happened that night shocked the country. As Fissas and his friends left the cafe, a large group of men attacked them. Reports put them at 30 to 40 attackers. Fissas was stabbed to death. Members of the Golden Dawn had been accused for years of perpetrating violent attacks, including murder. These alleged crimes had mostly targeted immigrants, such as the 2012 attacks on Egyptian fishermen in their home in Parama, and the murder of Pakistani national Shehzad Lukman in January of 2013. Despite these accusations, the party had sat in Greek parliament since 2012, with apparent impunity. While members had been prosecuted as individuals, the party itself had escaped legal action, although it clearly has a hierarchical, quasi-military structure. The murder of Fissas was the tipping point that set the investigation of the Golden Dawn in motion. Some say this was in part because Fissas was an ethnic Greek. His mother, Magda Fissas, spoke on the Greek radio. She believes that the party planned her son's murder. At first it was reported as a soccer fight turned violent. She thinks this cover-up would have been believed if Fissas had not stayed in a public place. We owe it to Pavlos. Unlike the others whom he told to leave, and they did and hid in the side streets, if Pavlos had also done that, the crime would have taken place in a side street and today they'd be describing it as a settling of scores and no one would know what had happened. So he stayed on a well-lit main road with plenty of people on it and traffic. The murderer went there on orders and his intent was clearly to stab him. 
γι' αυτό και φέρανε τον Μαχαιροβγάλτη. His murder has led to the biggest Nazi trial in Europe since the Second World War, which is still ongoing. 69 Golden Dawn party members are under investigation, including the leader, Nikolaos Michaloliakos, on charges of running a criminal organization. The man accused of stabbing Fisas, Yorgos Rupakias, has admitted to being a Golden Dawn member. He is also on record confessing the murder to a judge. Mikhailoliakos has stated that his party assumes political responsibility but denies criminal liability or any involvement in planning the killing. The prosecution is now trying to prove that high-ranking officials ordered the murder. This is part of a wider investigation into how the Golden Dawn is organized. Evidence is being gathered around its military-style operation, linking the crimes committed by its members to the leadership and Mikhailoliakos himself. Who members have described as the Führer. Meanwhile, the Golden Dawn still sits in the Greek Parliament with 16 MPs. All are on trial for various crimes. Costas Papiano was the Secretary General for Human Rights in the Ministry of Justice when the trial began. He is now the coordinator of Golden Dawn Watch, an initiative set up to monitor the trial. Papiano explains that it was not only the fact that Fisas was Greek that caused him to become such a martyr figure. He was an artist and also a working class hero. He worked in a labor neighborhood. That's why it was such a shock, especially for Piraeus and the neighborhoods there, but, but not only because it was not one of the typical, let's say, people that might be endangered by Golden Dawn. So it, it gave a shock to Greek society that tomorrow it may be your son or your daughter. The trial has been running now for more than two years with accusations that run to the very heart of Greek society, implicating the police themselves. Witnesses have testified that at least four police officers were present while Fissas was being murdered. They describe the cops standing by and watching. A police officer has also testified that when they made the arrest, the alleged murderer was strangely relaxed and said to them, I'm one of you, I'm Golden Dawn. Papiano says the struggle against fascism in Greece must be fought on many different fronts. I think it is very important that there is this trial. I am very optimistic of the, or not very, but I am optimistic about the verdict. At the same time, we still need to be very aware of the danger and the fact that one way of facing the neo-Nazi threat is the institutional way, and the other one is the political way that has to do with the collective and massive answer to the Nazi threat, which is in the neighborhood, in, in the workplaces, at schools, at universities, etc. They are not only embedded in Greek society. The Golden Dawn now have offices around the world and are a source of inspiration in Europe and the US for extreme right-wing groups. Papiano mentions the white separatist leader, Matthew Heimbach. We have to face the challenges of the present and the future. And, of course, these challenges have also got to do with the international environment, which is very pro-right friendly. The far right is gaining all over Europe, all the very important states. We also had this unbelievable explicit saying by one of the American prominent figures of the far right movement, saying that Golden Dawn is one of our... Uh, ideals, let's say, we are following the activities of Golden Dawn and, and they are a good example to us, which shows that far right is an imminent danger in different places internationally. The annual protests marking Fissa's death keep up the pressure around the trial. 
In mid-September, thousands of people came together across the country to honor Fissas and as a show of force against fascist influence in Greek institutions. In central Athens, around 2,000 protesters marched to the offices of the Golden Dawn to demand their closure. Speeches drew parallels with Heather Heyer, who died in August during the far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Pakistani community of Greece sang to remember those from their own community, who they believe were victims of the Golden Dawn. At the protest around the memorial stone, a university student, who preferred to remain anonymous, said public anger hasn't faded. Now, every year, we demonstrate uh, against the Golden Dawn in order to remember this uh, assassination. We say that the uh, Golden Dawn should be illegal and the judgment should uh, find them guilty. We connect this battle against Golden Dawn with the anti-fascist movement in the United States. He used his songs in order to convince people to fight the fascist. So, yeah, it was a very important uh, member of the fascist movement. So, this is the reason they killed him, of course. Fissa's song Zoria is especially powerful, as he seems to predict his own death. It has now become an anthem for the anti-fascist struggle in Greece. Μια τέτοια μέρα είναι ωραία για να πεθαίνεις όμορφα και όρθιος, ε, δημόσια θέα Με λένε Παύλο Φίσα από τον Περέα, Έλληνας και ότι συνάδει αυτό, όχι μια σημαία On such a day it is fine to die, beautifully and standing in public view. My name is Pavlos Fisas from Piraeus, Greek, whatever that might mean, not a flat not an heir to the black shirts. The Golden Dawn Party was registered in 1993, but their roots extend back into Greek history, drawing inspiration from the country's Nazi collaborators during the Second World War and the military dictatorship of 1967 to 1974. That's the leader of the Golden Dawn, Nikolaos Mechaliolakos, delivering his victory speech after being voted into parliament for the first time in 2012. He said he was proud of all those black shirts out in the villages holding Greek flags. We are patriots, he said. Those who betray this country, this motherland, should now start to be afraid. Outside, party members marched and shouted, Greece is for Greeks. Get out, foreigners. Now that the party is on trial, they are less present on the streets and less vocal. However, attacks still happen. Last January, a Golden Dawn MP, along with dozens of members, stormed a school planning to start teaching refugee children, 
punching and threatening teachers and parents. Those commemorating Fissa's death understand the importance of community action. After the street rallies, Fissa's family brought together a lineup of anti-fascist bands under the headline, How Can We Live With Them? The concert was held in Preyas Port, where Fissas often picked up jobs as a dock worker. One of his old friends and musical collaborators was there. He asked not to be named and made clear that those associated with the anti-fascist music scene still had to watch their backs. So uh, Pavlos was uh, a true artist, uh, was a true and poor artist. This poverty was uh, a problem to make music because to make music it costs. So Pablo's uh, was uh, true underground, was uh, the real underground under the under, uh, underground. I don't think that Pablo's would have inspired anybody if he wasn't dead. However, he was a very good lyricist and a very good rapper. Greece always waits uh, somebody to die to inspire another one. This is a, a cultural phenomenon of, of Greece. Around 10 p.m., skirmishes break out between the riot police and a group of around 40 or 50 people. They're wearing black and sporting masks, gear associated with the anarchist black bloc. Molotov cocktails are thrown at the police line. The riot police respond with tear gas. The air is thick with smoke, but the concert continues. Every year, the anniversary protests have been followed by street rioting. Anarchists engage in fights with the police, who they believe are compromised by fascist influence and responsible, in part, for Fissa's death. People in the anti-fascist movement have different ideas about what Fissas himself would have made of the street fighting. But by now, his legacy has surpassed his message and the music he made during his lifetime. For many, justice for Pavlos Fissas means something far larger. Justice for Greece. Fissas was not engaged with any political party. He was uh, a true pioneer uh, and a true, a true fighter. So that influenced everybody from uh, the day of his murder. We are trying to do the best to uh, leave uh, fascism out of our schools, uh, of our culture, of our neighborhoods through our music or through our movement. For those who betrayed me with knives in the back, I want you to know that I won't cry. And for those old loves, I want you to know that I won't cry. And those who threw me into fiery shackles, I want you to know that I'm not afraid. They come to find me on top, I wait for them, and I'm not afraid. For Making Contact, I'm Nikki Seth Smith with Alyssa Moxley in Athens. You're listening to Making Contact, the far right and Antifa. We'll be right back. Mark Bray is an historian of modern European history and the author of Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, which he based on interviews of more than 60 anti-fascists from 17 countries in Europe and North America. 
anti-fascism can mean a number of different things. And if you read a lot of historians talk about anti-fascism in the 30s and 40s, they tend to talk about it in terms of anyone that opposed Hitler and Mussolini being an anti-fascist. But the, the tradition that I'm focusing on in this book is in Italian and English called militant anti-fascism. In German is often called autonomous anti-fascism. And in French is called radical anti-fascism. And I would argue that it's kind of a, a, a politics or activity of social revolutionary self-defense against the far right. And it exists at the crossroads of two main considerations. First is it's a pan-radical left politics. It incorporates all sorts of socialists and anarchists and communists and other leftists. And that perspective grew out of the, largely the failure of the European left to get on the same page to fight the common enemy in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It's also a strategy and tactics of direct action that rejects turning to the police or the state or the courts or legislation to stop the far right, it argues for popular resistance from below. So if you take those two things into account, I think you have the main kind of considerations of what distinguishes the militant anti-fascist tradition from other kinds of perspectives. In the case of Europe, most notably from the majority of socialist and communist parties that argued after World War II for stopping the far right by essentially making it illegal and therefore working to, to stop uh, a fascist or Nazi resurgence by passing legislation against it. Militant anti-fascists developed out of a certain context where they felt like that was insufficient. But we'll talk about that more later. On the one hand, it's super important to be specific about what traditions we're talking about in, in anti-fascist history, but sometimes definitions can be limiting. So when I was writing the book, I was trying to think of what exactly is anti-fascism, and in order to do that, uh, I started thinking about what is fascism. One takeaway from that that I think is important to put up front is what Ami Césaire said about Nazism, which is that to some extent, it can be understood as European imperialism, colonialism, and genocide brought home to the European continent. So if we take that as a point of departure and understand fascism or Nazism as one specific variant of a global history of white supremacist genocide and domination, then I think the anti-fascist tradition understood explicitly as such can also be understood as it emerged in the 20th century as one specific variant of a global struggle against white supremacy and genocide that goes back to 1492 to the first slave ships to, to the domination of uh, so much of the world by uh, imperialism. So if you think of it that way, I think you can think of, either think of all of these forms of resistance as forms of anti-fascism or provincialize anti-fascism within the broader anti-racist tradition. Either way, it's important to think of these continuities and not just get focused on those who have identified as anti-fascists because in most eras of anti-fascist struggle, there have been groups doing the same kind of work against the same kind of foes that did not always identify as such. What I'm going to do now is read the beginning of chapter two, which is the immediate post-war chapter, and then talk about some of the kinds of lessons and conclusions. The image of British Member of Parliament Mavis Tate flickers onto the screen. I, as a Member of Parliament, vi visited Buchenwald concentration camp with nine others, she opens. Some people believe that the reports of what happened there are exaggerated, cut to stacks of emaciated bodies in the back of a truck. No words could exaggerate, Tate clarifies. We saw and we know a man attempts to shovel out charred skeletons from industrial ovens. The reality was indescribably worse than the pictures. Finally, she concludes, let no one say these things were never real. When the projection stopped in this small theater in northwest London in 1945, Morris Beckman and his cousin Harry Rose filed out into the lobby. 
Newsreels such as this showed a world a sliver of Nazi horror, but it really wasn't until the 1970s that the Holocaust began to be perceived by both scholars and the general public as an historical event of major importance. For Jews like Beckman and Rose, however, the horror could not be more palpable. They knew what post-war newsreels did not say, that most of the twisted corpses on the screen had belonged to adoring Jewish daughters, lovingly eccentric Jewish fathers, tough-as-nails Jewish grandmothers who gave a wry smile every time they recounted surviving the pogroms of their youth. Beckman and Rose didn't need to hear that from Mavis Tate, they were all too aware. They felt sick seeing those bodies like skeletons covered with skin. Both had served in the war, Beckman as a radio operator in the Merchant Marine, and Rose in a unit that had fought behind Japanese lines in Burma. As Jewish veterans, Nazism could not have been more personal. And so, as they walked home from the theater, they could not have been more appalled by what they came upon. On a street corner in London in, in 1945, they found a former 18B detainee, and the 18B detainees were those who had been in prison during the war for Nazi sympathies. So they came upon a former 18B detainee up on a soapbox in a street corner in London, shouting, not enough Jews were burned at Belson. Not enough Jews were burned at Belson. I can't believe it, Rose exclaimed. Still in his uniform and medals, he went up to a nearby police officer who just shrugged and walked away. Well, I'll get the bastard, Rose said, but his cousin held him back, fearing arrest. But isn't anybody going to do anything about this, Rose shouted. Over the next few years, the members and sympathizers of the approximately 14 fascist groups in London orchestrated a campaign against the local Jewish population with slogans like Jews must go and war on the Jews. They attacked people in Jewish neighborhoods, attempted to burn down synagogues, and even threw bombs into a union meeting. Not long after holding back his cousin from attacking a fascist speaker, Morris Beckman and three fellow Jewish veterans came upon another outdoor fascist meeting, this time organized by the British League of Ex-Service Men and Women. And as an aside, it's important to understand that after the war, a lot of the fascist organizing that reemerged chose really innocuous names, like the British League of Ex-Service Men and Women. Uh, that day, Jeffrey Hamm, formerly of the British Union of Fascists, was denouncing the, quote, aliens in our midst who profited while our boys fought overseas. The Jewish veterans had enough. This group, which included a judo expert formerly of the Welsh Guards, a former Royal Air Force pilot, Beckman, and another veteran, spread out into the crowd of 60. As the judo expert pretended to buy copies of the League newspaper, he suddenly smashed together the heads of the two fascist stewards while Beckman and the others toppled the, sta toppled the stage, dispersing everyone. Beckman explained that the sheer malevolence of the speaker moved him and his comrades to physically shut down a post-war fascist meeting for the first time. It would not be the last time. This direct action sparked the formation in 1946 of the 43 Group, a militant anti-fascist organization composed mainly, though not exclusively, of Jewish-British veterans dedicated to shutting down fascism through direct action and pursuing legislation against racist incitement. The 43 Group commando units had several methods of disrupting outdoor fascist meetings. If a single member could get through the cordon of fascist guards to reach the platform and knock it over, the police had a policy of not allowing the fascists to set it up again. With that in mind, the group organized units of about a dozen into a wedge formation. They would start far back out into the crowd and at an agreed upon time build up enough steam to plow through many times their number of muscular fascists and get to the platform and tip it over. But sometimes after a while, even the fascists realized that this was coming, so they, they put more guards up at the stage. And so if that was the case, if the platform was too well guarded, the commandos did have a plan B, they would disperse out into the crowd and start arguments and fights throughout 
so that the chaos forced the police to shut down the event. Another method was to, quote, jump the pitch by occupying the fascist meeting space before they could set up. So by the summer of 1946, the 43 group was attacking six to 10 fascist meetings per week. We can't gloss over the fact that in 1946 in London, there were six to 10 fascist meetings a week. Beckman estimates that about a third were disrupted by the group, a third shut down by the police, and a third continued as planned. After a while, the 43 group became so popular that locals would even join them or sometimes shut down fascist meetings on their own using similar methods. With the emergence of the, quote, hard case East End Yids, as the black shirts called them, the, quote, keep your head down and get indoors quickly mentality had gone for good. Um, so what can, we, what can we take from this history? Well, I think for starters, I think it's important to recognize that even in small doses, fascism can be dangerous and deadly. Historians generally point out that this, this organizing was really peripheral to British politics, didn't make a huge impact at a societal level, and therefore some sort of dismiss it. But if you were a Jew who had your synagogue attacked and your relatives threatened, and you were afraid to walk out your front door in London in 1946 or 1947, then for you it was an awfully big deal. And so sometimes what gets lost in these macro-historical perspectives is that the experience of those who are most threatened by fascism or white supremacist groups are often those who the society cares about the least. But even at a regime level, we can see that when Mussolini started out in 1919, he started out with 100 men. Two years later, it was up to 250,000. Likewise, in the case of Germany, when Hitler attended his first meeting of the German Workers' Party before the name changed to the Nazi Party, at the time, the, the party had 54 members. Now, at the time, of course, in, in right after World War I, there was no reason for the European left to necessarily think anything was coming out of this. It was a time of revolutionary upheaval. You had the two red years, the Biennio Rosso in Italy, when the Italian left was poised for social revolution. Likewise, there were uprisings in Germany. And so the focus of the Italian left was, and the German left and the European left was more on social revolution. But retrospectively, post-war anti-fascists have argued for treating every small white supremacist or fascist group as if they could be Mussolini's 100 or Hitler's 54. Most of the time, of course, they won't be. But if even one group could be, then it's worth treating them as such. Um, what else can we take from the example of the 43 group? Well, I think we can also see that uh, militant anti-fascist organizing can be awfully effective. So in the case of the 43 group, uh, they formed in 1946 and then voluntarily disbanded in 1949 because there weren't really that many more meetings to shut down. So, so in, in the chapter on the lessons, I, I go through a few, but one of them that I think is helpful to kind of think through the whole conversation is a critique of what could be called a kind of liberal anti-fascism. What I mean by that is essentially the argument that we should ignore the far right, um, that they'll go away on their own, grounded in, in, a, in really faith in three kind of alleged pillars of anti-fascism, one being rational discourse, the argument that the best way to stop fascist organizing is through making a compelling argument or a biting satirical critique. Um, second, that the, uh, the police will stop the fascists if they do something illegal. And third, that parliamentary politics is sort of inherently resistant to a fascist advance. But there's problems with all three of them. Now, anti-fascists do argue for making anti-fascist propaganda and, and trying to win over people that would be potentially susceptible to fascist and white supremacist politics. That's obviously super important. But fascism as a doctrine, if you even want to grant it that status, is anti-rational, is, is resistant to even granting humanity to those who argue against it. So second, the police. Uh, 
you know, with some with some audiences, I feel like I need to work harder at making this point, and some I feel like I don't have to work quite as hard. But but bear with me. Um, I think the police are, are you know often among the most sympathetic to the promise uh, of return to law and order that fascism espouses. Certainly, if you look to the 1920s and 30s, I don't know of too many cases of the uh, German or Italian police getting out there to try and stop Hitler and Mussolini, and and more recently. Uh, in, in countries like Greece or France, the police have been documented as voting disproportionately for the far right as opposed to the general society, all of that, right? Uh, but I think it's also important to talk about parliamentary politics. I think there's an assumption that parliamentary government is sort of inherently oppositional to fascism, but we can see that Hitler and Mussolini were both appointed. They gained power largely legally. Uh, the enabling act that granted Hitler supreme authority was approved by parliament. And so I think to some extent we can see that when parliamentary governments, or rather the ruling classes that support them, feel threatened enough, there are mechanisms built into parliamentary systems for the centralization of power under allegedly emergency circumstances. So in that sense, I think it's important to think of fascism and parliamentary capitalist government as on a kind of spectrum. Mark Ray spoke at East Bay Booksellers in Oakland, California. And that wraps up the show. Thanks to this week's contributors, Alyssa Moxley, Nikki Seth-Smith, and Lisa Redman. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.